The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. Today we have a unique show. Our guest is Dr. Deborah Serrani. She's an award-winning author of three books on depression, Living with Depression, Depression and Your Child, Depression in Later Life. She did a wonderful show on postpartum depression for us recently, and she's back again today, but today she's going to discuss something different. Today she's going to discuss her award-winning psychological suspense novel entitled The Ninth Session. Dr. Sarani is a go-to expert on psychological issues. Her interviews can be found on CNN, Newsday, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, affiliate radio programs at CBS and NPR. She writes for Psychology Today and Esperanza Magazine. She's an adjunct professor at Adelphi University. Dr. Sarani, it is my pleasure to welcome you back to Psych Up Live. Thank you so much. Okay, so everyone's wondering, me included, what made you, an established psychologist, write a suspense novel? <laughs> well, um, I, I do love a good thriller story myself, and the last few times I had finished reading a book, I said, I think I have a story that I could maybe tell. So um, I called upon some some experiences that I had in my life, and I wanted to write a book that really is a love story about psychoanalysis, in spite of the fact that it has to deal with suspense and crimes and um, things that most therapists will never deal with in their practice. Uh, But I wanted it to be a love story about the power of therapy. And I hope that um, I did achieve that and that readers will feel that way. Well, I will tell you that I would recommend this book for any beginning psychologist because, and as we're going to talk about it, you decide to be have a very personal relationship with your reader and you're very instructive at certain times. But I want our guests and our, our listening guests to first know how quickly you build the suspense, and that it never quite gives up. So I want you to hear, folks, exactly how this starts. And I'm, I'm going to ask Deb Serrani if she will literally read a little section now from the furry first page. I want to tell you as a psychologist and any psychologist listening, we do something every single day. We open the door to our waiting room and expect to see our patient. So let's hear how it starts, Deb. Well, it starts, I'll I'll write quote here. Mr. Farrow, I rolled my neck around the waiting room, then checked my watch, 8 o'clock on the dot. Seeing no one, I pressed my lips together. Did I make the appointment for 8 or 8.15? I left the door ajar, walked to my desk, 
and rechecked my schedule. I slid my finger down the Monday, June 5th grid in my appointment book to the 8 o'clock hour, and there was his name, Lucas Farrow. He'd be my last appointment for the night. Okay, it's 8 o'clock. Maybe he's running late. While I waited, I reviewed my notes from my telephone conversation with Farrow. I opened the crisp manila file and heard a shuffling, then a sputtering hiss of air in the waiting room. I turned towards the sound, unsure of what it was. A magazine falling on the floor? The air conditioning shutting off? I listened for another moment or two, and hearing nothing more, went back to my desk. And folks, I'm going to tell you, if you got a little anxious listening to that, it does not stop. So that (laughs) Debbie obviously knows how to build the suspense. But what she said before is something that I want to ask her about. So you made a, a concerted effort to have a relationship with the reader, Debbie, and to be instructive. Can you tell us how you did that? Well... When I was writing, I, I noticed that um, when you write first person, um, and which is much of how, uh, uh, completely how, how the ninth session is written, um, it's a much more intimate uh, experience for a reader than when it's written in a third person form. And I remember when I had first started writing this, um, it felt very easy and it flowed through me. To, to be able to write to the reader and convey to the reader many of the textures. I did start to write this in a third person uh, as a separate experience, and I felt that the story didn't carry the power and the impact, so I decided to just keep it as a first-person experience. Uh, and I know when I was shopping around for publishers, a lot of publishers were you know, kind of limiting the experience of the reader when you write it in a first-person form because there will be some people who don't want to have that connection so intimately. Um, but I decided to, you know, stay with the first person, and luckily I found a publisher who liked it. Um, but it, it was both a thrill to write in that form and also um, a gift because it allowed parts of me to feel much more comfortable uh, writing about the process of being a therapist um, and I think that uh, it does come through for the reader that they can understand the palpable internal experiences from the therapist, which is what I wanted to do. I really wanted this to be uh, both instructive and, and uh, exhilarating at the same time. Mm, and, it, and it is that. So what, what Dr. Sarandi does is her protagonist is Dr. Alicia Reese. And much of the action takes place in the psychologist's office or in the psychologist's thought process while she's with the patient, while she's alone, while she's with her supervisor. So you are in with Dr. Reese throughout the book. And so when she's terrified, it's very easy and almost impossible not to be terrified yourself. Now, the instructive part is interesting. I think one very quick example is... I think your your patient, when he finally is able to be in the session with you, reports that he's had cognitive behavioral therapy. And you sort of turn to the reader and tell them exactly what cognitive behavioral therapy is. In yeah, I, 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 
I just, I wanted to write a story about what it felt like to be a patient in a session, what it felt like to be a therapist in a session, and um, to, to really invite readers to see that it's, it's not what it often looks like on a movie screen or a television screen. There is so much that goes on in the process of therapy. Uh, of course, this is written through the eyes of the therapist, um, but I really wanted it to... To, to be a vehicle for helping readers understand that therapy is a very meaningful experience with lots of different ways to help a particular patient find symptom reduction or find relief from certain traumas in life. And I just wanted to be able to express the differences in the orientation and, you know, not overwhelm it intellectually too much, but say, but, you know, this is what cognitive work does, and this is different than what a psychoanalyst does. Yeah, you, you really do get an inside view of what a psychoanalyst is thinking. And one of the things that Debbie does at the end of every chapter is literally privilege the reader to the notes she is writing about the patient. So you see what she writes about the, that session that day, the transference, the counter-transference, what the prognosis is. So on, on an ongoing basis, you are very much an insider in the process with her. Now, at the same time, Debbie's able to write in a way that captures you. At one point, she describing she's describing this patient with her, and she says, silence came down like a curtain, and we lingered in its folds for a while. So that, just so you know, this is not a how-to book. In as much as she's letting you in, you are also reading some beautiful descriptions of what's happening between them with, with a beautiful choice of words. Now, oh, the, other, <laughs> the other character is throughout is the supervisor. And yes. I'll, I'll tip you off that. So I asked one of the people, um, I was telling people about the book and to read the book. So um, well, actually, this is my sister. I said to my sister, well, what, what do you, because th- she's a big mystery writer, I said, what do you think about the book? She said, I'm in the middle of it and I'm so anxious, I can't put it down. <laughs> and then she said to me, because she knows a little bit about the field, where was the supervisor? Why didn't the supervisor <laughs> help her? And this you're going to see if, if you read the book is a very interesting question. At one point, Debbie, the supervisor, Dr. Prada, says to you, you are fragile. You should reconsider this case. Now, that opens up the question, and maybe you could share with us about your choice of what's going on in Dr. Reese's life, because A, it's a part of the novel, but B, it also tells everyone out there that what is happening in an analyst's life or a therapist's life has to bear in some way on what happens in that room. So what right. does Dr. Prada mean when she says you're, you're fragile? Well, you know, when you write fiction, which is so different than writing nonfiction, you have to create some type of conflict, some type of reason why, um, you know, a person finds themselves in a difficult moment and whatever growth comes from it. So I wanted to create a character that was very smart and and, and uh, resilient, but also flawed. And I thought with some of my experiences that I have in my life, 
uh, loss is a tremendous um, experience we can all identify with. And I also wanted to add a little bit more about silence and quietness. Um, and I thought the world of being a child of deaf adults would help paint a textured picture of a woman who's not only experienced a great deal of loss, but who is really quite silent. There's a lot of stillness in her life. And as such, she might not really be able to judge how very dangerous a particular case might be or how challenging a case might be, or perhaps even find the challenge of it really stimulating to the point where others might say, wait, what are you doing? Which is what the supervisor finally echoes, which I'm sure many readers will say, like, well, what is she doing with this particular patient? Can't she maybe say this is out of her comfort zone? So Mm. I did want to create a character um, that is going to discover things about herself and also reflect that, it, it is very important that anybody who does any type of um, healing work, whether it's medical healing or mental health healing, how you have to be mindful about what your own life is about and, you know, that it does seep into the work that we do as therapists. It's very important that we have supervisors. It's very important that we're mindful and reflective about what's going on in our lives mm. uh, because it will affect our work and it will affect our patients' growth. So... To to just add a little bit to that, so this Dr. Reese, or, or psychologist in the novel, has lost her husband, the fair mm. um, and is the only hearing member of her family. She grows up as a child of, of deaf adult parents, and her little sister is also deaf. And right. her supervisor also has had that same experience. So yes, so so there's a there's a there's a. a, a a thread of commonality in spite of the fact that her supervisor is, is older and wiser and can even say to her, you know, Alicia, what are you doing here? Maybe, maybe this is too much. Yes, yes, which she tries. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> the sense of loss, though, and how much at times loss makes us vulnerable to fear and judgment seems is very, very well done. And really, you really do pick it up in an important way. Um, I I want us to read a certain section, but in the interest of time, let me ask you this. Do you think that you're suggesting that the supervisor so overly identifies with you as the therapist that she also misses the danger involved? No, I, I don't think that. That's not what I wanted to convey. I... I, the supervisor in, in this particular story is wise and knowing, and I, I do believe that, um, you know, there's a certain level of pathology that we all hope therapy can address, mm-hmm. and I guess that would be, without revealing too much, that would be the, the thread that, that I, I wanted readers to feel, which is, you know, there can be some some people who are struggling with enormous pathology and enormous symptoms that are dangerous. Um, you know, does therapy help? Can therapy help? Will therapy help? And how long do we hold on to the hope before we say, maybe not? 
Um, so I, I wanted to, to create it in somewhat of an ambivalent way, but the, the, therap- the, the therapist and the supervisor ha- share a commonality, um, but no, I don't think there's an over-identification, or at least I didn't want there to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted uh, the supervisor to be someone who was the voice of reason throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Okay, and um, and what you say to the readers is the reason for supervision is an extra sense of senses. That is, you know, an extra person feeling into the patient, but she does respect your decisions, although at some point she wants to be certain you have set up a, a, a protective plan for yourself and your patient, which which is really an important piece. Yes, yes, and you know, I'm I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about this. Um, but in in difficult cases, this is often um, decided. You know, are you going to have a hospital plan? What do you, does do the police need to be involved? What are the necessary steps to keep the patient safe? To to keep the treatment safe? To keep the therapist safe? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a lot of times we don't see this or read about it. But there are people doing um, work with individuals that um, may make one feel nervous and even perhaps right. even a little frightened. Right. We also know in our work that sometimes the patient won't allow themselves to feel nervous, anxious, or um, upset, and it's the therapist who's almost feeling it for them. And that's a very important, we call it counter-transference mm-hmm. um, piece. Right. We're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here talking with Dr. Deborah Serrani, psychologist, professor, author of three recognized books on depression. Today, she's discussing her new award-winning suspense novel, The Ninth Session. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input, too. Listen for Brave Hearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. There are many innocent people who are found guilty of crimes that they did not commit. Join criminal defense investigator Jeff Stein for Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? Each show, we'll discuss the problem, and it is a problem. The fact that because of incompetent investigations and a poor judicial system, anybody can become a victim. Can we fix this? Tune in to find out. You can listen Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Deborah Serrani, and we're discussing her new award-winning suspense novel, The Ninth Session. I was mentioning to, to, to Debbie at the break that I'm glad that she clarified the fact that, well, none of us would work if we just went with our initial anxiety about meeting a patient for the first time. That being said, what I mentioned at the beginning is true about this novel. It starts off with you wondering what and what is that sound in the waiting room, and it really doesn't stop. And I want Debbie to read to you what she feels when this patient who she starts to work with reveals something to her. Let's pick up there, Deb. When the real and the unreal collide, a moment of denial crashes within a person's psyche. Though it was only seconds, the shock of it all moved me in slow motion. I put down the paper and focused on Luke. I saw him struggling to breathe. Fighting the pressuring panic, he suddenly doubled over to the floor. The folder he held fell along with him, scattering the clippings everywhere. I wasn't prepared for anything like this. I thought the panic disorder could be traced to his dysfunctional mother, but this changed everything. A sudden expanse swelled within me, and it took all I had to push my fear aside. I managed to move out of my chair towards Luke and knelt on the floor. So I want you to know that that's where our psychologist is, and that's only page 38. So you can imagine how this unfolds on and on to becoming a very complicated and frightening situation. One of the things that has happened early in the novel, even before that, is Dr. Reese keeps seeing a black sedan show up in front of her house in her driveway. So if you think you're going to calm down for a moment, Debbie has interspersed a constant reminder that something's wrong, something's happening, there's someone there. So with that in mind, I, I, I wanted you to describe it in the book. Let's talk a little bit about the Tarasoff rule and how that becomes part of your plot, Deb. Well, um, I always, this was the hook for me. <laughs> When I was thinking about writing a story, which is, as therapists, we're very trusted individuals. We see people in their worst moments. Um, they reveal things to us that they may never talk to or share with anybody else. And there are certain ethical pieces to the work that we do. Um, and um, it, it involves not just keeping a secret, but also... What would happen if someone does say they're going to hurt themselves or does say that I have urges to hurt somebody else? Um, and many years ago, there was a case in California um, where an individual, a patient, 
shared with his therapist that he was having hurtful and harmful impulses towards a woman that he knew. And the therapist did not take action, uh, and this young girl was killed by this man, his patient. And as a result of this particular law case, uh, it's called the Tarasoff case, it requires people who are in the mental health field um, that if there's an, a, the slightest bit of, of identification that someone's going to hurt themselves or someone else, we have to let a third party know, be it a police officer or a family member, um, and I wondered to myself, what would happen in a timeline when, when a patient tells you something that's in the past? That's done. There's no forward-thinking violence. There's no possibility of, of danger or harm. So those secrets remain intact and safe. But what happens if somebody tells you they've done something and it's just seconds later, uh, or a minute later, or a day later, you know, we're bound by that timeline still. It's currently present. It's over and done with. What do you do as a therapist? And I think it becomes a moral question. What is the right thing to do? Is the right thing to hold the, the ethical standard? Is the right thing to consider a moral standard? So, you know, I, my mind sometimes goes in those directions to these big questions in life. Um, and I thought about, you know, what would happen if, if this particular character, Dr. Reese, is confronted by information that is enormously damaging and scary and frightening, and what does she do with it? How does she move forward with it? Um, and that's essentially the, the conflict here. Um, in the ninth session, um, and, you know, it's, it's a question that I think is a good one for many therapists to ask, um, and come the end of the story, the reader decides whether or not the, Reese, the decisions Reese makes are valuable or not. I think each reader will have a come away with a different feeling. Mm-hmm, very well said. And one of the quotes that echoes in this book is something that you even at some point share with this particular patient. And it's sometimes the hard thing to do and the right thing to do are one and the same. Mm. Yeah, I love that quote. Um, I remember hearing it as a young girl growing up. <laughs> and it still applies today that, you know, sometimes you got to do the right thing and it might not be the easy thing. Uh, but what is the right thing for a person? And, you know, that's the question I ask as an author. Of course, um, you know, this is fiction and it's suspense and it's, it's a thriller. And it's, of course, something that um, I, I think many therapists would say, oh, my goodness, I would never work with a patient like this. Um, but this is the story of the book. And, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that the ride is a fun one and a curious one. And one where readers will say, wow, um, you know, I don't know if I could do this. I don't know if I would have done that. And um, that it sparks some good conversation. Mm. Now, one of the things when you read about what suspense novelists say about fiction, suspense fiction, is, and it's interesting to me, one, one female writer said, well, 
there's usually a, a female protagonist who is facing danger, but there must be twists. And there are a lot of twists here that you don't expect. Um, in, in terms of both what happens with the therapist and what's happening with the patient and, and the responses even from the supervisor. Now, in some ways, uh, Debbie, I wondered if you wanted to speak a little bit about your thought process in writing it. I once read, I think it's from The uh, the Writer's Way, which is an old book, that sometimes a writer gets so much into their unconscious that they're surprised at what happens. I think in one of the examples from that book, the writer who's writing three pages as it directs you every morning is shocked that in the story he's writing, the woman loses her leg. And he thinks, wow, she lost her leg. It's almost (laughs) like he didn't consciously plan that to happen, but it sort of unfolded from his unconscious. In terms of your fictional writing, how do you relate to that? I I totally think that, uh, you know, everything that's written in this book is a piece of me. Every character is a piece of me. And yes, the organic unfolding of the story would take would take me, and that's the thrill I had writing, which was, wow, I didn't think it was going to go here, <laughs> and here it is now. Is it, how feasible is this? Is this something that could happen? Okay, let me keep going with it. And yeah, it, it would, it, it, it was a very unique experience to, to write something like this, so different than many of the nonfiction or academic papers that are written because, you know, you're kind of collating material and, and um, rephrasing certain evidence and you're kind of repeating it back in a way that makes it understandable to the reader. This is a totally different experience and one that I wasn't afraid of or fearful of, but I was consistently surprised by um, <laughs> and, and, and how much I enjoyed uh, not knowing where it was going to go. Like, I, too, didn't... I knew the beginning, I knew the middle, and I knew my ending. But everything else that happened in between was just an unconscious process, and I really enjoyed writing it. Well, it makes me ask you, one of the other things this woman writer said is, as readers, um, we love that the heroine, well, the psychologist in this case, can do sort of things we probably ourselves wouldn't be able to do. And I, th- I think at one point you you do some pretty heroic things. You're in the car, you're chasing police cars, <laughs> you're, you're, you've got a whole thing going with cell phones in the city. And I thought, I don't, I don't know if Debbie does this on a regular basis. So. <laughs> no, I do uh, none of this. <laughs> right. So I'm wondering if you got as much thrill writing about yourself as somewhat of a superhero as the, the reader gets in oh identifying my God. It, you. Yeah, I, I, I was able to, ex- I've got a lot of baggage and a lot of history, you know, with a lot of trauma and, 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 other, and other such issues. So to me, being able to kind of let um, certain parts of my id come out or certain parts of, um, you know, pieces of me that I would, that I, not only don't I ever want to be, I never am, but there was a liberation and freedom that came from being able to do such things that I would never do in real life and to explore the textures of that and even to, um, 
you know, lay it out in a particular way where it's not an unbelievable leap to see if somebody were in such a situation that maybe they would do this. Um, But, yeah, it it really was an enjoyable process. And I would always say to my husband, he'd be like, why are you spending so much time doing this? Nobody's going to read this. I'm like, I really don't care. I'm having so (laughs) much fun. and, And it would be like, where, you know, everybody's going to sleep, and I was like, oh, didn't I just sit down? So it, it was a, a really wonderful experience, and I, and I can remember as a kid when teachers would say, you know, you know, go home and write a story and make up something. It would always be something I'd love to do. And I think that there's a healing piece that comes from not only reading fiction, but perhaps for those of us who do write, um, that, it, that it answers certain callings within us. Mm, I definitely think that you, you could see it. And I do want to underscore, it's not that Debbie becomes a superhero at any point in this, but she really responds in tandem. She's writing the notes of each session and the patient's diagnosis is getting more and more profound, more and more worrisome. And at times she really has to take some action. So it's it's fascinating to see how she does that. Um, well, I think, I, think a, I think a good character is someone who's very flawed. They do things that you, you say, oh, mm-hmm. my God, are you serious? They're doing this? And then there's this other middle ground where they're normal and comfortable and reasonable, and then they're challenged, and, and their, their ability to move through adversity is inspiring. So I love a good flawed character who's challenged in an, in a way where they evolve or change. Um, that to me has always been what pulls me to books or certain movies is that flawed piece and and the heroic or perhaps resilient quality that gets tapped through adversity. That that mm. to me is always a, a fun thing to explore in a character. Well, I think you definitely hold on to the flawed piece because even as Dr. Reese is doing things, it's very clear she is not a superhero and she's a little bit messy at times at what she does, oh, yeah. but yeah. but nonetheless, it's, it's uh, frighteningly real to see what happens with her. You know, one thing the supervisor didn't ask Dr. Reese is that is, is your attachment to this patient such that you can't see straight? Where right. you're not making good judgment calls. Right. That's right, because I, I, I would agree that that's very true. Um, and, and I thought about inviting that perspective, and I thought it would close the reader down and close the possibility of all these other things yeah. that unfold. Yes. But, yes. Um, yeah, it was like a delicate balance. Like how I, I always thought that, that Prater was was the voice of reason. She, she's ego throughout this whole thing. Um, and and she's, the, she's the ground that, that, that Reese needs and that the story needs and that eventually the reader sees is, is necessary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it would have closed it down. I mean, the best that she does is something that you open this book with the quote, all of us are much more human than otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I think... Rather than her say to you, are you out of your mind? Um, you know, she, she actually can validate. She can identify with how tangled this became 
how frightening this became. And I mean, to the very end, listeners, I want you to know you, you, you just don't expect the twists that are going to happen at the very end. Um, so, and, go ahead. And I, and I, I really wanted psychotherapy to be the main character, that the flaws that, that Reese, as a psychologist, that she steps in on and breaks or ruins or changes is her, is her flaw, that the, that the work itself is helpful, is curative. Uh, Lucas discovers things about himself. She discovers things about herself. You know, psychotherapy um, is the love story. That's my love story. This is what I'm hoping um, people will say, you know, well, I don't know if I'd do this as a therapist or if a reader says, gee, I, I don't know if I would want to have her as a therapist. Or, yeah, I would love for her to be my therapist. That the, that the takeaway is always, wow, it's, it's the psychoanalytic work that really, really helps this very flawed character in, in Luke and in Alicia. Well, and at one point confirming that you have the character say to you, but I'm going to tell you things that even I don't want to think about. And you say, well, that's why we're here. This, mm-hmm. this is the place where you're going to say them. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, part of what we see, we really see the process with this young man being, you know, terrified physically to being able to share the shocker is what he shares. But you right, really right. do underscore that the power is to find a way to tell the story that never had words before because it was too much Correct. to bear. Correct. And to, and to try not to sit in judgment of it, but to try and understand what, why is this happening? Why are you like this? What, what is the reason? Not, you know, how come? Or how could this have happened? It's, it's more of a, a curiosity of understanding how trauma, some of us are just lucky that trauma and our support systems and the people that we've had along the way to help us have really just, you know, saved us. Some, some people haven't been saved, couldn't be saved. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of luck in life, I think. The older I get, the more I believe that. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's probably true. We're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're lucky enough to have with us today Dr. Deborah Serrani, psychologist, professor, author of three recognized books on depression. And today she's discussing her award-winning suspense novel, The Ninth Session. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in for In the Black. Host Bob Dickerson and his guests take a look at Black America and its socioeconomic place. In the Black will discuss the positive issues affecting Black Americans, including education improvements, business growth, closing the racial wealth gap, activism, and more. In order for America to reach its full potential, Black America must do the same. Tune into In the Black, live every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. We're here with Debbie Serrani, and we're talking about her award-winning suspense novel, The Ninth Session. One of the things I was just mentioning to Debbie is that as this book heads toward its ending, the twists don't stop. And one of the twists is um, information about a character that hasn't really figured that much in the book, but now figures in a way that you start to worry about closure and can there even be closure and I mentioned to Debbie was was that purposeful um in that she wanted to leave this you know a number of series when they end they end but not quite and so I didn't know if Debbie did it purposely it's certainly very effective it's kind of a little bit of a cliffhanger although there is some closure was that something you thought about Deb yeah that was definitely intentional (laughs) Again, this is a really um, not a romantic part of the publishing world. Uh, When when you're looking to publish a book, particularly like this, the the first thing they ask is why do we why why do we want to publish your book? And the second one is this will be a series. Yes. So so I knew I was writing a, a book book one of a series. So I did want to leave somewhat of, uh, you know, uh, an interest in reading further. So that was definitely part of the, the outline. Um, and But how to do that and how to achieve that, um, again, you know, I just kind of let the organic unfolding process happen. It took me to this place, and I said, hmm, I think this will work. Well, what's interesting for those who've read it and who plan to, it leaves you frightened again <clears throat> with with what could possibly happen to Dr. Reese and what it is she's now become aware of. The other thing that I, I wondered is at some point at the, at the end, Dr. Reese, the character, 
is unusually calm with um, a, a fairly dangerous patient. And I wondered, did she actually think that's the way we would feel? Um, and, and maybe you can speak about how that relates to the coda, when, and maybe define what a coda is again. Yes, um, I, I really wanted this to be a, a flawed uh, person who um, could deal with danger perhaps in a way that most ordinary people wouldn't. Um, and uh, it's not to say that anybody who lives in the deaf world or is part of deaf culture or, in this case, Dr. Reese being a child of deaf adults, um, deals better or I'm implying that they, they um, have less of an emotional response. I'm not saying that at all. What I am, what I am trying to convey is that silence and stillness um, are, are comforting places for many people who live in those cultures. So given that um, Reese at the end of the book is meeting up again, perhaps with um, our character, Lucas, um, it's, it's something she's not that afraid to do. Um, it's something that there's not a, a varying emotional quality to her going there. She's got a job to do that she sees that she has to do, feels compelled to talk to him about particular things. And it's done in a way where I, I, I don't know if I was effective enough, and perhaps, perhaps I can consider that in the next book, uh, trying to convey um, this level of stillness and um, not quite comfort, but the ability to deal with danger in a way that makes her somewhat of a, um, an admired character or perhaps flawed in, in some people's minds to be mm-hmm. able to do that. Well, in terms of talking about a dangerous patient, as people have wanted to know, is there a story behind the story? Have you ever yourself been with a patient you felt was dangerous, Deb? Uh, yes. Um, and when I was very young clinician, <clears throat> over 30 years ago, I was asked, uh, I was working at a particular local community center, and I was asked if I would take on a case of um, a, a, a man who was released on a technicality um, for a very serious violent crime. Uh, he had murdered an individual four or five years earlier, and so... I, I thought about it, and the person that was supervising me, we created all of these ways to stay safe and to rearrange the office room, and he even said he'd stay late every time the patient was there. Mm. My husband, who was an attorney, said, what are you doing? So here, you know, we have again, you know, where, as, as Prada would say, you know, what are you doing? I, I, that definitely was something I was familiar with, um, and I did work with this patient, and it was scary and it was frightening, but there were also some very significant moments that I guess taught me that, you know, the work that we do can be helpful, it can be curative, and, you know, if we hold to the tenets of psychoanalysis, understanding trauma, understanding attachment, understanding the repetition of certain traumas and why they happen and how they can get lost in aggression, that scary behaviors can sometimes be understood, not forgiven and not released in any type of way, but understood 
And sometimes that understanding can help a particularly damaged person. And I think that it did with this person that I worked with many years ago. So that was, that was the seedling. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Deb, as we're out of time, I'd like you to let our listeners know how they can find you and your um, other books. Uh, they can find me on my website, which is drdebrasarani.com, and uh, my books are listed there, or if they want to go to any online bookstore or brick-and-mortar bookstore, they should have my stuff. So, um, yeah, okay. that, would be, that would be the simplest way. I want to thank you for coming on. This time, you make a wonderful contribution, not only to our love of psychology, but our love of fiction. So, again, Debbie, thank you for the ninth session. Thank you so much for inviting me today, Suzanne. Okay. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this in any prior show as a podcast on my host site by 6 p.m. tonight. It's also on the podcast app of your iPhones, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Apple TV. You can ask Alexa for it. So you can find the podcasts almost everywhere. Mostly... Drop me a comment or a question if you'd like at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. And until next week, take care, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.